the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, don't work at all. It's yeah, just a no crap to some nothing. people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chadwick Matlin, an editor of 538, with me in the studio. Back again, guys. It's been a couple weeks. Kate Fagan, columnist at ESPNW. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. How was your week off from Hot Takedown? I was in Texas. Oh, basking. One Direction almost broke up. Oh, because so you went glad. to Texas or because we weren't on the air? Well, no, because, just we were because we were apart for two weeks. I thought of One Direction, which thankfully they're not breaking up. But people thought they were breaking up. You're comparing us to One Direction. That's what, what I'm, I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. With the fan base and everything. Neil Payne, sense. sports writer extraordinaire at 538. Hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Chad? How big of a One Direction fan are you? Uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, I'd say I'm a 20. So Wow. That's yeah. big time. Your fandom is heading in oh, one direction. Of course. All right, the U.S. Open is here on today's show. We're going to talk about it not once, but twice. Two different segments. First, of course, at the US, if we're talking about tennis, we're going to talk to Carl Bialik. He'll be here in the studio. Very exciting. Uh, we're going to wring our hands about the fate of American tennis, and Carl will tell us whether Serena is the greatest of all time or just an all-time great. And then for the second segment, we're, we're going to tackle the hottest hot take of the week. Is Serena Williams lacking endorsements because she's black? We'll try and make sense of the tweets that, spet, that set the sports media aflame. And finally, Neil Payne is going to help you, listener, win your fantasy football draft in just three easy steps. Right, Neil? That's all it is? Three oh, steps? yeah. No, it's that easy. Yeah. It's one yeah, step. Guaranteed, one step. actually. That's right. Yeah. Kate, I have a feeling when I know you, what your one step is going to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, now to the U.S. Open, which means to Carl Bialik. Carl's a writer at 538, and in the studio, Carl, welcome to Hot Takedown in person. I've never been here in person. It's really exciting. You've repatriated to America. We're very excited for it. Here I am. Uh, so Carl's been on the show in the past to uh, talk uh, to us about Wimbledon and French and the French Open from both of those tournaments, and um, we're going to talk a bit later about your, your podcasting efforts from the U.S. Open, but first, let's get into men's tennis before we get to Serena, and we are going to talk about Serena. It seems like every U.S. Open is an occasion to just wonder about the state of, of men's tennis in particular. Um, and, and this year, men's tennis is so bad that the, the, the wondering hasn't been limited, limited just to this summer. Here is Pete Sampras, the tennis great, from back in December. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, it looks a little bit on the slim side from American tennis. I don't see anyone, I don't really know anyone that's even, uh, that people are talking about. We're not in the 90s anymore. So, Carl, let's take the 90s anymore bit. Is, do the numbers back up what's plain to see? Is it really not the 90s anymore for Americans men's tennis? It's bleak. It's not even the 2000s. So <laughs> the 90s were great for American men's tennis. Sampras, Agassi, Corey, or Chang. The 2000s looked like they were a big decline. Uh, 
Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open in 2003, and we haven't had any since then, won by American men. Uh, and now we're missing Roddick. Now it's way worse than it was in Roddick's days. There's nobody in the top 10. There's really no one making semifinals, let alone winning slams. So Sampras is right about what's happening right now, but it might be getting better soon. So before we get to it being better soon, you have written about this before, and you have a, a graph that shows the share of the ranking points that that American men have made up, the ranking points being that uh, Serena Williams is ranked number one, so she gets more points. Um, the USA, you, in, the, in 1990, had more than 25% of a share, and they're now down to right around 5%, if I'm reading this correctly. So it really is a, a, a steep drop-off. Yeah, it's uh, partly because there are a lot of other countries that are getting better and have great depth of talent, and there are way more popular sports in the U.S., like the NFL that you guys are going to talk about later. So uh, it's really gone from the U.S. pretty much dominating, almost in a boring fashion, to it being a very international game and the U.S. trailing quite a few countries. You, you did mention just now, though, that it's going to get better. Is there in- indications you have... That, that point to that conclusion? Uh, it's somewhat speculative, but there are a bunch of juniors in the boys' game who are quite good from the U.S. Uh, and have done well on grass and clay uh, at the French Open Juniors Tournament at Wimbledon, uh, are ranked pretty high. It's not obvious how well that predicts later success, but a lot of great players did really well in the juniors. Not everyone who did well in the juniors becomes a great player. Uh, there's a little bit a reason to hesitate because maybe the U.S. just has enough funding to send a lot of players to a lot of tournaments, get them enough ranking points that they can travel to Paris, travel to Melbourne, play the tournaments. But that's always been true. And even so, a few years ago, the U.S. wasn't doing that well in the boys game. And now it really is. So it could take a while. We talked, I think, during the French Open about how it takes longer for players to go from being great teenagers to being great professionals. So I don't think any of these guys are going to be winning a slam in the next few years. But maybe in five years, we'll have some top 10 players contending for big titles. And is that kind of exacerbated by what we've talked about in the past, where the good players are actually kind of staying good longer and into an older age that maybe since this is kind of a down generation of U.S. players that it's sort of that generation has persisted longer and been lacking the U.S., I guess, in it. Yeah, that's definitely a factor. I think there are two things happening, which is that players are able to prolong their careers. And I think there was just kind of a fluke of a pretty bad generation, not just in the U.S., but internationally, kind of in the now in the like 23 to 27 age range. Uh, So that has kept the older guys around and winning and motivated because it's fun to stick around if you're winning. Um, And so it's going to be tough for the teenagers to break through. But from the U.S. and from a lot of other countries, there are some really strong teenagers. And you, you mentioned that obviously the expansion of the NFL possibly means that some of the talented young athletes are going into different sports. When you look at tennis history and you would say, right, that, that guys who were great in the 90s grew up in the 70s, late 70s, and tennis was just it, it was at the peak of kind of popular culture and McEnroe and all these things we talked about and, and TV exposure and primetime TV exposure. How much of it, the decline in young talent entering tennis, do you think has to do also with TV and the exposure and all of those confluence of events? I think it has a lot to do with it. Uh, and the, this, there's a story in the Times about this today and how 
one of the young Americans was inspired because he saw what Roddick was wearing when he won the 2003 U.S. Open. So he saw him win, and he also kind of liked his look. So we never know what will inspire a six-year-old to to take up a, a racket. So I think that's definitely a factor, but I think also sometimes there are just singular talents who, for whatever reason, take up the sport and happen to be great at it. And it can work the opposite way. Like Switzerland right now, you'd think would have some great young talent because of Roger Federer and people growing up watching him 10, 12 years ago become number one. And in the boys' game, they really don't, although in the girls' game, they do. And, you know, you can be inspired by a player of of either game. Uh, So it's not one-to-one, but I think it, it would help. Uh, if there had been a stronger American men's game about 15 years ago. So speaking of players of uh, on either side of the gender divide, we should talk about Serena Williams. The only reason we didn't lead with her, despite her being the biggest storyline of, of this U.S. Open as she tries to get the Grand Slam, uh, is because we already did a segment on, on how great she was. Carl, this week on 538, you and Ben Morris, one of our sports writers, wrote a piece trying to make sense of Serena's greatness. Um, I think it's been relatively established that she is going for the greatest of all time um, mantle. Uh, But you found that maybe she's just an all-time great instead. Um, Do you want to talk about what went into that? Yeah, we were using a measure that uh, we've used a lot of 538 called ELO, which takes into account every head-to-head matchup. And when you beat someone, you rise in the rating based on how good that opponent was. And when you lose to them, you drop. And again, it depends on how good the opponent was who beat you. Hardcore uh, hot takedown listeners will remember uh, that we once talked about NBA ELO on this podcast. Ruben Fisher-Baum came on and talked about historical NBA ELO and and various franchises rising and falling. Yeah. And I think it's good you bring up the NBA because I think hardcore NBA fans will both be able to find that chart that we did really interesting and still say, I still care the most about titles. And that's valid. So If Serena Williams wins the U.S. Open, she'll have won five straight Grand Slams. She'll have 22 overall. She'll be tied with Steffi Graf. She'll be in a great position to actually overtake Margaret Court, who has the most of all time if you take into account the pre-professional era. And I think for most fans, that's going to count the most. And that's totally fair. Those are the biggest prizes. We were looking at every match and every result. And if some players just kind of care less about matches outside of Grand Slams, then that could affect it. But from what we saw, what's really driving where Serena Williams ranks, which at her best is below Steffi Graf, Martina Navratilova, Monica Seles, although not by very much, is that she's played, especially recently, against a weaker set of opponents, according to our ratings. Um, Her sister, Venus Williams, is a great player, but not really for the last five years. Maria Sharapova, a lot of injuries. The younger generation, like in the men's game, just not that strong, probably kind of a, a fluke or an aberration. So by the ratings we used, Serena Williams at her best, not the best of all time, and Serena Williams right now, not quite at her best, although the best ever almost 34-year-old player. So is this a situation where she just can't accumulate rating points almost because she's like 95 to 99% likely to win every single match that she plays against this weak crop of competition? So it's like very difficult for her to distinguish herself now that she has this super high rating? Yeah, that, that's definitely something we considered because if you win every single one of your matches, then you, ELO won't do a great job necessarily of rating you because you, you've you kind of maxed out. There's nowhere to go but There's up. Nowhere, I mean, you just don't down. have anyone yeah. to really push you. Uh, she hasn't won every match, though. And also, I think we would see her dominating more, and she's struggled in a lot of matches. I mean, what's made her, I think, so exciting and great and inspiring this year is that she's come back a lot in matches. But 
you ask her, she doesn't want to come back. This isn't like something she's doing for the excitement. It's because she's not quite good enough to dominate every single match. And that would be another undercare we would look at. So we broke it down, for instance, by set and by game as a way to kind of give her more credit if she were just blowing opponents off the court. And even there, she was not the greatest of all time. So what was you, you mentioned the age thing. And what was really interesting about Serena's um, chart of her career is that she had a double peak. Uh, and that's, if I read your piece correctly, what was really remarkable about Serena Williams was that she had somehow um, declined and now, even with weaker competition, is back on top. And you hadn't seen that kind of pattern before, right? Yeah, it's certainly not with her peers historically, the best players of all time. Uh, some lasted longer than others, like Martina Navratilova had a great career in her 30s but was still declining, whereas for the last three, three and a half years, pretty much since she turned 30, which is remarkable. Serena Williams has been improving. And, you know, we say she isn't yet back to her best form, but she could be if she keeps winning the way she has been. And so for this U.S. Open, based on your ELO ratings, there's no one in particular who you think can really threaten what Serena, Serena's march to the championship? Or is ELO not able to tell us that? ELO is able to tell us no one in particular, is likely to beat her in any particular match. But she has six more she needs to win. And we've seen her this year lose sets in Grand Slams, which she obviously cares about more than any other tournament, to players you never would have expected her to. This is a funny thing about Serena Williams. Earlier in her career, she would often, uh, after matches, say that the reason she lost is she hadn't played that well, and that was considered not gracious. But I think that's actually an accurate assessment of many of her losses. Uh, So I think now, while she's much more gracious in the sort of tennis tradition of saying my opponent played really well, I think her the biggest threat to her, other than a few possible you know players peaking, will be her having an off day, which she's had a few times this year and escaped and made for great, exciting matches, but she really could have lost some of those. It has to be such an unsettling feeling that you are so good that the only person who can beat you is yourself. Is you. And, yeah, and just yeah. The, like the, the pressure that builds up. Um, okay, so Carl, let's take one minute and talk about some podcasts that you're going to do around the U.S. Open. They're going to appear in the Hot Takedown feed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's the plan. And so you're going to be on site in Flushing, and what, what's, what, what's it going to sound like for listeners? Uh, you're going to hear all the noises of the U.S. Open. So rowdy New York fans, balls bouncing, um, people heckling, people booing. Uh, you know, so yesterday the umpire gave a uh, time violation warning to both Nadal and to his opponent, and the fans booed. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully hopefully we'll, we'll get to hear why people say the U.S. Open is where the fans get the most involved in the match of any of, of the major tournaments. And you're going to be doing a recap of, of, what, of the play that's been going on and, and what might be coming up? Uh, we're going to talk about whatever is the most interesting mm-hmm. that day, and we're going to, uh, you know, talk to other people from other parts of ESPN who are going to be there, including Louisa Thomas from Grantland. Uh, so, listener, hot takedown listeners, keep an eye out for that in the Hot Takedown feed, a little U.S. Open companion, and spread the word to all of your, your tennis fans. Carl, as always, total pleasure. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, let's move on from how Serena plays to how she gets paid. This week's most startling hot take came from inside the house, the ESPN house. ESPN's Darren Ravel rifled off two tweets. I'm going to read them to you guys. Um, they, were, they were startling. The first, quote, A lot of people feel like Serena, by virtue of success, deserves more endorsement money, dollar sign, than Maria. Sharapova. Doesn't work that way. 
So that's the first tweet. And I want to break them, them down one by one. But let me read the second first. Uh, the second quote. Racism talk is idiotic when it comes to Serena. It's the same marketplace that pays big money to tons of black athletes. So let's get to the first one. A lot of people feel like Serena, by virtue of, success, of her success, deserves more endorsement money than Maria. It doesn't work that way. That, to me, seems true, however you know, warped that endorsement market might be, that endorsements are, uh, are a stage for fantasy and, and for society, the way that society broadcasts fantasy outwardly through commerce and whatever else. Do you, do, does that sound right to you guys? I think... I never thought of endorsement as some sort of meritocracy mm-hmm. or, you know, win equals this amount of value, especially not when I'm often paying attention to what female athletes are receiving in terms of endorsement money. Because, and I've done a few columns on this around um, Branded, which was a 9 for 9, a 30 for 30 film documentary that ESPN did. And I did a column about endorsement money when it comes to women versus men. Um Men get endorsed for skill, for looks, for trustworthiness. If they have any of those, they often get endorsement money. For women, it's it's often looks first and then skill like in very small second. Um, and they need to check all the boxes. So I don't ever think of endorsement money as a one-to-one ratio. Right. We should say that the London School of Marketing uh, releases a list of the most marketable sports stars and of the top 20 athletes two of them are women both of them tennis players and and maria sharapova in 12th place and serena williams in 12th and i should add is that the reason i don't think it's a one-to-one ratio is because there are so many isms that are creeping into society and therefore endorsement money right and so okay should we move on to the the second thing with the racism stuff because that seems to be where the real hot takiness of, of Ravel came from um Racism talk is idiotic when it comes to Serena. It's the same marketplace that pays big money to tons of black athletes. Neil, does that black does that comparison to tons of black athletes seem seem like it holds water to you? Not especially because uh, I'm presuming he's talking about a lot of male athletes, uh, and you know certainly not to speak for all people who are advertising. But there does seem to be certain things that are valued on the men's athlete side for spokesmen uh, versus, you know, for spokeswomen on the women's side. Uh, and and we've talked a lot about this with Serena in the past, that whenever people see her win, there's a not insignificant subset of the Twitter sphere that has very ugly, you know, sexist and racist things to say about her and even like body shaming things to say about her uh, where, you know, it kind of encapsulates the mindset of some people about why she wouldn't fit the the description that you would want out of a, a spokes model or, or what have you. Um, and, you know, that probably plays into the disparity against someone like Sharapova who you know, because of a lot of these isms, fits the the ideal in in a lot of people's minds more, um, right or wrong. And the ideal of a tennis star. And I think you know, Serena is an outlier in a bunch of ways. We just talked about the way she's an outlier uh, on on the court in her performance, but she's also also an outlier as a black American tennis, uh, black woman American uh, tennis star in a game that is not does not have many people who look like her. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's not an apples to apples comparison that. Ravel is making in this tweet because certainly what advertisers are looking for if they're going to be endorsing 
athletes in the NBA and the culture of that space is very different than traditionally speaking what advertisers who are looking to endorse athletes in the tennis space. And historically, because tennis is historically more of a white sport, there's a certain sort of risk-averse demographic that the tennis advertisers are looking for. And Serena doesn't fit that mold for them. And I I was even having this conversation with someone today in Flushing Meadows about whether racism plays into Serena's endorsement money. And somebody actually said verbatim, well, it's not really racism. It's just that tennis advertisers over the years have have just come to want to endorse more of like a blonde haired, you know, woman. And I'm like, well, that's actually just coded. It's the same exact thing. Why do you think that they've always been looking for that and that's sort of the standard and going with Serena feels risky to them and we all know sports is risk averse and that's that's institutional prejudice you know it's yeah. not like it's also market based prejudice where yeah. if the people who are responding to the ads are responding more towards Sharapova than they are towards Williams that might be that the the marketer can say, well, this is what works better, but there's all sorts of stuff packed into it. Right, that. and maybe it's just a, kind of this vicious cycle where people think that that's you know what what uh, people are responding to out of ads, and so they seek that archetype, and then it kind of feeds upon itself to the point that you can only see the ads featuring a certain type. Uh, and and Serena Williams doesn't fit that. And, you know, maybe this is a trite comparison. I'm sure it's been made, and maybe this is its own hot take. But I think about Tiger Woods on on the golf side. Certainly golf, very white-dominated sport for the longest time. But he really was able to crack the upper echelons of the marketability uh, ratings in, in golf almost instantly uh, when, when after he won the Masters in 1997. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to... It almost highlights the the difference based on sexism beyond even racism that that it's been so much more difficult for Serena um, in tennis. And another thing I think is playing coming into play here is that a lot of people within tennis will say, well, Maria Sharapova from day one knew the role she needed to play to capitalize on endorsements. Well, the reason she knew that role is because half a dozen a dozen women had walked that path before so when she got into tennis she could say here's how i need to speak here's how i need to act here's the look i need to project past the past tells me that the that this will be rewarded if i behave in xyz way serena comes into tennis there is no path there's no path for her that she could say well okay so and so and so and so walk this path in this in this age and here's how here's here's how i need to behave to get XYZ. Like, that didn't exist. Right. And uh, Sharapova's had the same manager since she was 12 who has really kind of set her on this path to, you know, checking off all the boxes that she needs to do, like you said, to, to reach this level. And I feel like when Serena was at the same age, her father, Richard, uh, was, you know, fighting against or trying to train his daughters to fight against things like racism <laughs> in the sport. Well, you know, it, it was it was not a matter of concerning yourself with, you know, making the right decisions to try to maximize advertising revenue down the road, there were bigger concerns and more important barriers to break uh, that had to be taken down before they could even start thinking about those things. Uh, So it's just such a different comparison, I think, um, between the two. And it also speaks about when Sharapova sort of burst onto the scene was in one of the, like Carl talked about, the down period in Williams's career. So it was like she capitalized on this very iconic moment where she was 17, she won Wimbledon, and it's 
sort of started things off on this very, uh, you know, already on the path because when we think of her, we have this image of her winning uh, the most prestigious uh, of all the majors. And, and I think the parallel to make here between like sport and society is the amount of energy that Serena has had to put, as you mentioned, like with her dad and coming out of Compton, to simply get onto the same plane. The amount of energy to clear some of those hurdles is all part of the institutionalized racism that she has faced from day one. And here's another thing. Think about uh, tennis has a history with this, and maybe these were the types that you were talking about before with, like, Anna Kornikova, for instance, being known far more for her looks than her play. Uh, and, and it seems like, uh, you know, Maria Sharapova has found almost a sweet spot where she's not the best player, but she's a really good player. And she's may not, you know, she has the same look as an Anna Kornikova, so she's found the the right combination of those two that might only exist in women's tennis where you have to balance those two things to maximize your your money making we should say that in the elo ratings that that carl just spoke about sharapova and williams williams overtook sharapova in 2009 and has not looked back since so their distance from one another on the court is proven left right and center and it hasn't invert. It, it hasn't mattered seemingly. And Serena's days. what, like eighteen and two head to head against her. Like right. uh, uh, Sharapova almost literally can't win when she faces Serena on the court. Okay, I think we sufficiently buried those Darren Ravel tweets. Uh, let's now move on to fantasy football, guys. It's fantasy football time. It seems like fantasy football is this, this like mystery box that no one quite knows how to crack, and everyone's thirsty for advice. And if you look at the top podcast in iTunes right now. Three of the top 15 in all of iTunes, not <laughs> iTunes sports, whatever, are fantasy football podcasts. People want to know how to be better than all of their friends. Uh, one of them, one of those top 15 uh, is by the Fantasy Footballers. Uh, and our it's pretty hot on take, the nose name. I know, yeah. yeah. Our hot take comes from the Fantasy Footballers and a recent show they did called 10 Tips and Tricks to Dominate Your Fantasy League. Here's a little montage. What you want to do is pay attention to those early injuries. Stashing as many running backs on your roster as you humanly can. Every position matters. Tiers, uh, not rankings. So that's, you know, an amateur to expert approach to it. It's something. And so, Neil, we went looking for people who tried to optimize it in an analytics-y way, in a hot takedown way, in a 538 way. And one of the things you dredged up, it was so good, I just have to read. What do you mean by good? from it okay. just 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 listen, listen to this passage it's an academic paper not peer-reviewed the paper finds that risk neutrality involves hedging auction bids by 10 percent and using a position specific pricing and discount bonus of the same amount using value-based bidding in a risk neutral scenario was confirmed as the best overall auction draft strategy for increasing utility but in a draft with multiple risk neutral bidders bidding with risk aversion was a conditionally optimal strategy was that from the abstract, too? Or was that the actual paper? That was from the abstract. <laughs> so, Kate, I'm sure you used a uh, conditionally optimal strategy. I'm always debating you... between risk-averse and ri- risk-neutral uh-huh. um, philosophies. I As bounce well, back and should. forth. Then I draft Eli Manning every single time. <laughs> that, that, that's risk-averse. <laughs> so, Neil, stat man, Neil. Yeah. Help us make sense of whether, the, whether there even is a way to game 
a fantasy football draft. This one, I think, tested the limits of uh, stat, even Statman's <laughs> uh, bulletproof vest or, or what have you. Um, so I think uh, the it was a paper that we found at uh, Harvard. It had been done by the Harvard sports analysis people, and it was just kind of trying to answer the question of should you take on a player that perhaps – you know, is a better player. He, if you played out 10,000 fantasy seasons, this guy would score more points for you and you built your roster with a bunch of those people. Or would it be better to, but that person is also kind of inconsistent. Like you, there's a lot of uh, variance around, you know. So there's a running back who sometimes runs for 1,500 yards a year and sometimes runs for 900 Yeah. Yards. Exactly. Uh, or should you, and that, and that was considered the risk neutral, uh, they, they specified that there was also a risk seeking option where people went out of their way to go find uh, players that were super risky just for the fun and its own sake. So that they, when you win, you really won. You crushed those yeah, people. You won by, by thrill seeking. And they said they chose not to model that because it was, uh, it was a, a, almost like a psychological problem on the behalf of the player, <laughs> not necessarily a rational strategy. But, you know, that's their opinion anyway uh they the other type of uh, drafter was someone who was risk averse they were willing to take on a player that really if you played out all of the seasons ten thousand times this player uh, these players would score less uh than the first class of player but they were more guaranteed to score at least something that was like respectable you know the idea a decent th- amount right do we want kate th- you, this is your and my team obviously yeah when we draft do we want someone who's steady um, but but maybe less than great all the time, or we want someone who has moments of greatness. I think we have moments of greatness. Kate. Exactly, we deserve that. that. That collaboration that we feel, the moments of magic. I, well, obviously, you would want both, right? You want both those plays. You would want a roster to that. I you think, want a mix. Yeah, that, where you would have a, a, a set chunk of guys. Where you're like, okay, they're not going to blow it out of the water, but they're going to give you a set number of points. And then you want like any roster, and then you want your guys who, when they're up at the plate, to use you know baseball. They have the chance to hit the home run. Because mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, even when Neil and I were talking about it beforehand, there are times when you want to go into Monday night and you're just glad to have the one guy playing who's always getting you a set number of points. And then there are times when you go into Monday night and you're glad you have a guy who can come up with, you know, the double the points that, that you need to make up whatever deficit you're at. I mean, it's more of a philosophical question about a lot of times how, how people play sports, how you build rosters, regardless of fantasy, whether you want guys who are going to hit 280. And certainly you do want those guys, but you also want some guys who can do dynamic things. So, Neil, what did the paper find? What, I mean, you want, yeah, did it, so did it recommend something? For our, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it should be said that, uh, like, the guy took into account like positions uh, and the availability of the players. So it wasn't something where it's like your whole roster necessarily has to be made up of these type of things. It's more like for any one player that you're drafting with any given pick, would you be better off and average more points or, you know, win your league more often, I suppose, than if you took the risky player versus the, the less risky player? So he kind of controlled for, you know, maybe you do have, you know, all else being equal, maybe you do have, you know, a nice mix otherwise, uh, but you're focusing on this one player that you're adding. And he found that fantasy owners were too risk averse uh, and that they were willing to kind of leave points on the table to try to get that guarantee of points or that feeling of security that they had. So we should be drafting more riskily. That we want that that person on Monday night 
who can run for 150 yards and bring us a come-from-behind victory. Right, and I think there's a lot of like uh, psychological research outside of this in you know social sciences and, and things like that where they find that as humans in general, we're pretty risk-averse uh, in our decision-making every day. So it's not super surprising that they found that people play fantasy football the same way. I guess the interesting part of it is that fantasy football is an area where everything really is quantified. We're not having to make like you know guesstimates of things like we do when we're trying to figure out what the are we paying too much for a certain good or you know various other things in our life so uh, even when we have very well defined like prices and like auctions or draft positions and how much a player is worth in terms of all of the things that he does on the field even then we're we're still risk averse which I found interesting so okay so that's the draft obviously there's also sort of the the waiver wires whenever else comes later in the season and who to pick in the draft in the first place there are so many guides and podcasts that try and tell you which players are the players who are on the rise or who are the players who are due for a big season and use all sorts of analytics and new fangled stats to try and make sense of them is that all bunk is it just is it is it being too cute can you just look at how many points a player is likely to score and call it a day well, I mean, I think you have to have some way of figuring out how many points a player is likely to score. Like, that in and of itself isn't a, a done deal. It's not, you know, an obvious thing. Uh, and you probably could get, like, 90% of the way there just by looking at, like, the recent history of a player. But, you know, there are things out there, I think, that add value, like trying to figure out, you know, who a team's red zone targets will be. That's something that I think people have talked about recently, but really in in the past, in the early years of fantasy football, didn't really talk about at all. And now, you know, they track targets. They track, like, snaps that you're on the field The idea for. there is that you get lots of points if you score a touchdown, and so as a result, right. if the quarterback's more likely to throw to Victor Cruz than he is to Odell Beckham Jr., then you should take Cruz as opposed to Beckham Jr., especially given that Kate takes Eli Manning when she's risk averse. <laughs> right. And Cruz. Yeah. I actually draft oh, them okay. both. You Tandem. handcuff them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and even, I mean, this is not totally new because I remember when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had Mike Allstott and Warwick Dunn, there was, uh, you know, the idea of, well, Dunn is going to get you near the, the goal line, but then when it came to vulturing touchdowns, they would just give it to Allstott at the two-yard line and he would you know there would be some fantasy owner that uh had like three mike allstott touchdowns on like five carries and 10 yards or something and and if you owned work done you were like oh man he did all the work and you know someone came in and vultured so the idea of like capitalizing on the rules of fantasy Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out who will get more opportunities than others and are there disproportionate opportunities given to certain players isn't totally new but now i think we're quantifying them a lot more readily yeah, I think the part that I think it gets kind of the gray area is when you're trying to identify talent that might have a breakout year, as opposed to identifying spaces in the game where guys get more touches that end up being more valuable. That is, in a way, quantifiable. I think sometimes what fantasy owners get carried away with is like thinking they're going to pinpoint the next star before he comes, before he actually becomes a star. And you, of course, you want to do that because that's where all the value is. Mm-hmm. And we always do that in like March Madness when we're when we're picking games. If we think we've seen a team that's up and coming, we think they're going to play above expectations. That to me can be a gray area where you get out of your depth, and there's a there's not as much of a way to quantify. 
Yeah, and it's tough because I think uh, unless you really do your homework and you really know what you're talking about, yeah, uh, and maybe you know unless you're plugged in during the preseason and you know all of the teams' depth charts and some of the distributions of the the opportunities that they'll give out, and and even if a guy looks like you know you have like a keen scouting eye and you saw him during <laughs> you know training yeah. camp and and uh, he looks faster or someone's in the best shape of their life, uh, that you would probably be better off just kind of going with uh, a very wisdom of crowds approach like what makes one person think that they know more than everyone else unless they really have done their homework but the problem with that is that you can't really win in an advantage league. yeah exactly yeah. you're going to be the same as everyone else or you're going to be playing at least from the same playbook as everyone else and we see this in march madness where the winning uh, bracket is always someone that doesn't necessarily go like strictly by the Ken Palm, you know, ratings or, or I know, or the seeds or anything like that. Even if those are the single most likely, you know, uh, if you again, if you played out the bracket ten thousand times, yeah. that those would be the teams that would win. It's always someone that like t- picks a pretty good bracket or like a good bracket, but also has uh, you know the right twists on it. You know, takes the right risks. And the problem is we don't really know what those mm-hmm. will be. We know there will be upsets, and we know that there will be players who either get hurt or you know stop performing in fantasy and, and other players that rise on the basis of just breakout performances but we can't always say which players those will be and that's kind of the key to winning in fantasy is right. figuring out which ones those will be yeah for New York Giants fans I think it was about maybe four years ago if you paid attention to all of their preseason games and that you're actually my family has season tickets so I went to a couple preseason games and Victor Cruz was nobody. He he was out of Rutgers. He was what, like a fifth round draft pick? I'm not if sure. That. Yeah. And, but if you watched him in those preseason games, you're like, this guy is going to be amazing. I think I actually even, my equivalent was I bought his jersey for the season. I didn't pick him up on fantasy or anything because I wasn't playing that year. It's a bigger investment. <laughs> exactly. It was an $80 jersey. Yeah. But So I think there are those moments that get people so excited. And, and I think there were a lot of Giants fans who would have put him because he would have been really inexpensive to draft on fantasy. And then a guy like that ends up scoring huge points but then you get caught thinking you can do that all the time and then you have a lot of busts or guys that you've that you've drafted who who don't pan out right okay so i feel like i know a little more about the draft (laughs) i don't play fantasy so i'm not sure what i'm going to do with this information but it sounds like i in general need to take more risks in my life especially if i start playing fantasy football right you want to have just a couple degrees you want to have a solid base and then just the right risks is what you want to take chad all right well, Kate, we're in this together, yeah. right? So Eli and Victor. That's right. The right risks. <laughs> All right. So for those of you watching on video, thanks for watching. And for those of you listening to the podcast, Significant Digit is coming up. And now for our Significant Digit, when we bring a telling stat from the world of sports. Alice McCann is on vacation this week. So Jody Avergan, our producer, is here with us. Hello, Hi. Jody. Hi. Jody. Uh, you let me out of the control room. Who are, who are you again? <laughs> yeah, I know. I sit behind that wall over there. You also host another podcast, Jody. I do. do I I host a show called What's the Point. How's it Uh, going? It's going well. And people who listen to Hot Takedown should go uh, subscribe to What's the Point. But this is not pure cross-promotion. I'm actually bringing a significant data. What's the data point, Jody? (laughs) So so this week's significant digit is uh, $500,000. And that's uh, how much Major League Baseball paid for the domain MLB.com in 2000. And there was this great piece on Grantland recently by Ben Lindbergh about uh, Major League Baseball's quest to slowly and but surely and steadily buy up every 
URL for every team. And there are three team URLs that they do not own at this moment. And anyone want to take a guess? Hmm. Well, I know well, one of clearly them clearly none the, of you read yeah. the Grantland piece by Ben yeah. Lindbergh. I did. It's a great piece. You did. So, so I don't know if okay. I can offer a spoiler or not. So so they don't own Giants.com, which is owned by the New York Giants. So like, you know. So we'll they're not going to get that. that. They're not going to get that. Rays.com is owned by a Seattle restaurant, which looks okay, you know. Um, and then Twins.com is the best <laughs> one because Twins.com is just owned by a pair of twins. And if you go to Twins.com... It's just a placeholder website, and it says, like, if you want to get in touch with us, here's an email address, and that's it. Um, <laughs> uh, do they, do they have tw- ransom demands? Twins at twins.com. No, but they're just sitting on it and waiting for the offer to go up or whatever. <laughs> but MLB, you know, has clearly wanted to consolidate all these names, and I just love that there are two twins holding out um, for this. You know, I own importantjournalism.com. I was going to ask if anyone was a squatter. Yeah. yeah, I'm squatting on importantjournalism.com. A lot of offers coming in for that? Uh, I don't know, but I bought it like at dinner like uh, two weeks ago. I just saw that it was not being used. Important <laughs> it came up Wait, over dinner? So you were at dinner and you noticed that a URL was <laughs> well, we available? We were talking about sitting on various URLs and we were trying to figure out what uh, what was available and somehow we decided to check to see if importantjournalism.com and importantjournalism.net Shouldn't you want, and Don't you un- want dot, dot .org for important journalism? And unimportantjournalism.com. I think I own Ooh. both of them now. And both ends a of hefty the bill. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Uh, twins.com. See, I, thought, I thought it was going to be like f- for the movie. The movie Twins. With Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger? <laughs> I thought it would be like a splash page for that movie since it was yeah. such a good movie. They dredged up that Space Jam uh, website from 1996 or something. Frames. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, listeners, if you want to go to, if you want to start a campaign to make twins.com not go to MLB, not go to these twins, but the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito movie. <laughs> That's yeah, a good not the team. Yeah. yeah, that's a good Kickstarter. Email us at podcast at 538.com. We'll collect all of your signatures and we'll send it over to uh, Warner, Warner Brothers? Brothers. Yeah, whoever Paramount? made twins. <laughs> Jody, thanks for this week's significant digit. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne. Thanks, Chad. This one breezed by, guys. You know, it's so, so quick. So fast. Uh, our podcast producer, who's locked away. Again, inside the studio booth is Jody Avergan. I'm still here, Chad. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's <laughs> I loose. I thought we escorted you out. Uh, as we said earlier, go and listen and subscribe to What's the Point. You can find it in iTunes. Our video producer is Ryan Antel. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin. We still don't have an intern. Asta, your memory lives on. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Of course, find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. Where we are, of course, on iTunes. While you're there, subscribe, review, rate, listen, etc. at iTunes.com slash 538. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.